back to the East Career Cast, a series of audio interviews with leaders in the field of acute care surgery designed to provide you with practical information regarding career development, leadership, and career challenges. Today's episode is part of our Past President series, and our guest is Dr. Elliot Hout. He's being interviewed by Dr. Charlie Harris. Dr. Hout and Dr. Harris discuss Dr. Hout's path into medicine through East and towards finding a greater purpose in our profession. Dr. Harris can be found on Twitter at Charlie T. Harris, and Dr. Hout can be found at Elliot Hout with two L's and two T's. All right, here's the show. Good afternoon, Dr. Hout. Uh, thank you for joining us on uh, the CareerCast today. Absolutely. I'm excited for it. Uh, so this is uh, going to be part of the CareerCast East uh, Past President series, where the purpose is to talk about your career to this point, how your participation in East has helped you get to this point, and uh, how you've been able to successfully navigate the East organization and have opportunities to uh, lead the organization. So um, I'd like to start with you just having an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe some things that the general uh, audience wouldn't necessarily know about you, and uh, how you decided to get into medicine. Sure. So uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia uh, and my dad was a doctor. He was a classic old fashioned Marcus Welby kind of medical oncologist, the guy who would uh, like sit on the edge of the bed and hold the patient's hand, uh, worked super hard. And I, I kind of never thought I was going to be a doctor until kind of middle of college. And then I thought more about it and I realized that's where I wanted to be. I knew I was never going to be an oncologist like him. And I knew I was going to do something in surgery. Uh, I like the idea of you do a thing and it fixes a person much more concrete as opposed to the super long-term longitudinal piece. Um, so I thought I was going to do some surgery of some sort. I actually thought I was going to do orthopedics early. And the first paper I ever wrote as a medical student, uh, I was a co-author on a paper as a you know second-year medical student based on a research project I worked on as a summer uh, in orthopedics. So I knew I was going to do surgery of some sort. I, I went away to college and then came back to Philadelphia and did all my all my training in Philadelphia, medical school, residency, research fellowship, and fellowship uh, in trauma, all in Philadelphia. And that's kind of my my pathway to medicine. Okay. So how did you uh, how did you choose trauma as opposed to maybe orthopedics or well, something else? No, it's a great question. So you know, I actually did research in thoracic. I thought I was maybe going to do thoracic. Uh, and then I came back and I was, I went to medical school at Penn and I had been exposed to the, the trauma team there in medical school. And then I rotated as a visiting resident. I trained at Pennsylvania Hospital, a small community program. And I would visit back to the Penn program in different ways as a second year visiting resident in the ICU or, and a second year visiting on the trauma service. Uh, and I was like that. And then I rotated on pediatrics and did pediatric trauma uh, at Children's Hospital. And I liked that. And then in the lab, I was actually, I would moonlight uh, partly on peds trauma and other places. And then uh, I think the thing that solidified it for me was my fourth year rotation in trauma. Uh, so this was back in the day when we did every third night, you had a part of the team that was yours. And there were two other senior residents on the service. And every third night when I was on call, I did some amazing trauma case and the other two residents didn't do much. And it, as you know, it's just the luck of the draw. Uh, but I remember doing, you know, a stab wound to the trachea 
I remember doing a resuscitative thoracotomy. Uh, we salvaged the patient. I remember doing splenectomy, nephrectomy, vascular repair. Like every single, every third night, I would do some great case. And I was just hooked. The variety, the interest, the people there were amazing. You know, there were the senior faculty, the Bill Schwab, Don Carter, Pat Riley senior faculty. But even as a, a resident, I mean, Don Jenkins was the senior fellow when I was a second year resident. Um, and he has become, you know, a great uh, leader in trauma. He was a fellow when I was a resident and I learned a lot from Don. Uh, you know, my fourth year, John Pryor was my senior fellow. And I remember doing cases with John. Um, and it was the people, it was the cases, it was the patients you were helping. It was the variety, it was the interest. Um, I felt like you were making a difference. I think that's kind of where it all came together. And I think fourth year is when it really solidified it for me. Yeah, I think uh, getting really, really good access and to interesting cases like that would definitely help you make that decision. Do you think if you had this, maybe the same exposure as the other medical students that you said weren't getting as much, that you would have made the same decision? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think it, it's interesting. People pick their specialty for many different reasons. Some really right. have a, a research interest and that's how, why they focus on a specific area. Others have a, you know, a specific patient population they like, but a lot of times it really just has to do with your experience, whether mm -hmm. it's as a medical student or as a resident on a specific rotation, because you, you know, you struck a chord with some of the patients or more likely than not, I think it has a lot to do with mentorship. I think if there's a great couple faculty members on that rotation and you see what their career is like, you see what they do day to day, and they really talk with you and help you understand what they do and, and show you the path, I think that can be a great opportunity for making a decision into a certain pathway. And I think I had a lot of those people in my life. Definitely. Um... Yeah, mentorship is very important and one of the great things that we do at East. So speaking of East, uh, how did you uh, get involved with East initially? What At what point uh, in your career were you when you joined and how did you get involved early? So I think things have changed. You know, I joined East as a fellow because that was kind of the right time around then. Now we tell residents all the time, if you're interested in trauma, join East early, get involved much, much earlier. So I joined as a, as a fellow. And then I got involved. I mentioned Pat Riley already. Pat was the chair of one of the committees, uh, was chairing the program committee, and I was a junior faculty. And, you know, I had asked Pat, I wanted to do academic trauma. I said, keep an eye out if there's anything that come up I can help with. And so, you know, a few years into faculty, Pat uh, got in touch with me and asked if I wanted to be on the East uh, program committee. And I, of course, said yes followed up with, well, I don't know how to, how to do that or what to do. He said, no, that, that's what you do. You'll join the committee. We'll help you work through it. We'll help you understand what to do, et cetera. And that's how it kind of got started. Um, I will say the pathway to getting on your first committee is very, very different now. Uh, I had Pat as a great sponsor and sponsorship is still amazing in, in trauma surgery and academic medicine in general, having those people that will put your name forth as a person to help with something is really, really important. I feel like I've tried to pay that forward to other people. But now, if you want to be on a committee, you don't need a Pat Riley. You just need to be on the lookout for the call for volunteers. And people get on the committees that way. And we've made it a lot more transparent at East 
about how you get involved on these committees. It's not that you just have a connection with someone who asks you. Now it really is a, a much more open and transparent process. Very true. So that I definitely um, was pushed in joining uh, committees on for myself by my mentor, Andrew Bernard, but it's certainly even not having him do that, I, I would certainly find it very easy to to do that myself with how easy it is to join committees nowadays. I'll just add on top of that, that, sure. you know, East is one of the organizations where residents can be a full member of a committee and can mm -hmm. really help support and your voice is listened to, your voice is heard. If you've got time and energy to do work for a committee, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a full professor or if you're a, you know, mid-level resident. Mm -hmm. If you've got time and energy to support the organization by being on a committee, please chime in. So how did you move up through the ranks of East uh, from your first committee appointment to the executive committee and other leadership opportunities? So I think the first thing I, I tell people is, you know, get involved. And hopefully on that program committee, I was involved. I was on all the conference calls. I went to the that meeting uh, or that group would meet in person once a year and dedicated time uh, you know, paid full attention, engaged, worked with the committee, you know, don't just be on a committee so you have a line on your CV, be on a committee so you can uh, help support it and help drive the mission of the organization via that committee. Um, I also joined the Practice Management Guidelines Committee, and at that time, the Guidelines Committee had literally like 100 people on it, because everybody working on a guideline was therefore de facto onto the committee. We've changed that since then, but I you know, people said, oh, why don't you get involved in a guideline? So I got involved in a couple of guidelines as, you know, a middle author. I can help review some papers. I worked on it. And I think just showing your involvement, showing that you're interested, um, those two things uh, allowed me to then get onto another committee. So, you know, you're, you finish your role for three years on committee one, you rotate on to committee two, you do some more good, high quality committee work, whether you write you know, a research paper, a white paper, or put together a webinar, or do some online media, or social media, or a session at the meeting, or what help run something, and show that you can put forth a good work product. And now, you know, it, I'm more of a moving toward mid career. And then one of the pres presidents select the committee chairs, and Jeff Salamone talked to me and said, "Hey, Elliot, would you be willing to chair the guidelines committee?" And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. I mean, it's um, I'm interested in it. I've been on the committee. I've co-authored a guideline. Um, I, I kind of know how it works. Um, and I said, I'd be willing to do it. And that was, I think, the big stepping stone and the big opportunity that I had to really grow my presence uh, at East. It sounds like joining a, a committee and participating and doing the things necessary to be noticed for doing good work will eventually help you get noticed by the right people to put you in a position to be successful. I think so. And I think then having the, you know, a little bit of sponsorship of the pro, you know, the, the committee chair and, and as president, you know, I talked to all the committee chairs, Hey, committee chair for this committee, do you have anybody on your committee who would do a really good job taking over as chair for you? And that's where they would recommend someone. And that's where your name gets passed around to the president, president-elect, you know, nominating committee, all the groups that are making these decisions. It's because people have done good stuff for the organization. Mm -hmm. 
And you mentioned uh, being your first chair was being uh, chair of the guidelines committee, correct? Yes. You spent uh, a lot of time in your presidential address talking about the guidelines committee and how the, the grade criteria and how East has been involved in the creation of practice management guidelines. Can you talk a little bit about that with regards to um, how East has become uh, a leader in that area? Sure. So, you know, when I took over the guidelines committee, um, it was actually an ad hoc committee. So this is 2012. East had been doing guidelines for for literally probably almost two decades by then, um, but really had been a leader in guidelines. And, you know, it's it was a surprise to me that this committee I was chairing was was an ad hoc committee. It was not a full standing committee. And over my course as the chair of guidelines, that actually changed. I wasn't the one who pushed it forward, uh, but I was the one who was the chair when that happened. And other people really said, hey, East is guidelines. That's one of the signature items that East puts out. And we really need to make this as a standing committee as one of the important things that we do. So over the course of my, my three-year tenure as the guidelines chair, that changed. We became a standing committee. We went from, like I said, you know, 100 people on the committee, anybody working on a guideline, to a smaller, more nimble group. So maybe there's 20 people on the committee um, that are helping create guidelines. How are we writing them and the support for them, et cetera? And you don't need to be a member of the committee to be working on a guideline. So we kind of separated those two pieces out. But East has been doing guidelines since for a very long time. We've got 75 different guidelines. Uh, you can go to the East website and find out a ton about them. Most are published in the Journal of Trauma, although there's others that are published in other journals like Trauma Surgery, Acute Care Open, Annals of Surgery. There's a few other places that they're scattered throughout. But East really is known as the place for trauma guidelines. Um, you know, we worked on a report for the National Academies of Medicine, and I wrote about the importance of East in creating guidelines. There was a, a panel run by the National Quality Forum, and we put in information about East guidelines. And between East and the ACSCOT, those were the two places that were really putting forth uh, recommendations of what we should be doing for trauma care and measurements of outcomes of trauma care. Um, so East really is in the space of guidelines and improving quality and improving uh, patient care via the use of guidelines. One thing I've noticed sort of in my short career, having you know worked at several different trauma centers, is that you know institutional guidelines are sort of an easy way to get started in the quality process fairly early in your career. Um, so it seems like to me that being involved in guidelines and the creation of guidelines would be helpful even for somebody who's not necessarily looking to join the committee. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I tell people, not everybody's going to write an East guideline, although I will tell you mm -hmm. literally hundreds of people have helped write East guidelines over the decades. Um, but not everybody needs to do that. But everybody should be involved in the process improvement work at their local trauma center or local hospital where they work. And, you know, one way to do that is to translate these East guidelines from an East product to a local product at your trauma center. And there's some things that move directly very easily in a one-to-one -one fashion. And there's others that need to be tweaked a little bit. 
um, to make it uh, fit into your place. It might be different depending if you're a level one, level two, level three. It might be different if you're urban versus rural. It might be different if you have residents versus you don't. Your involvement of different subspecialties, things like that. But this idea that you take a well-done evidence-based review and guideline from East and then adapt it to your local center is, I think, critically important. And then the other piece of that is now you have some metrics that you should be studying and looking at. And it's really nice to look at those metrics at your hospital. Every patient with a spleen injury, did you follow the guideline? Every patient with TBI, did you follow this part, that part? You can drill that down to all the patients. You can drill it down by provider level. There's lots of things that you can do using some informatics and some data to see if we're following guidelines on all the patients all the time. Talk a little bit about, say, the difference between guidelines and maybe and the, the evidence-based research behind them and, say, uh, institutional protocols. Is there a difference? Is this, are we just using these words interchangeably sometimes? So I'm, my question is, is there a difference between them and how do you define a guideline? Sure. So interestingly, a guideline really has some very specific criteria, and this all started with the U.S. Congress. U.S. Congress put out a report via the National Academies of Medicine, the Institute of Medicine at the time, about um, guidelines we can believe, guidelines we can trust. So it tells us a bunch of different things about guidelines, one of which is they really need to be evidence-based. So the way EAST is doing them now is we do a systematic review, meta-analysis if appropriate, uh, put it into a very specific format. We use GRADE, which is one standardized way that's been around for a while, and we've embraced it really for the past decade. So that really is a guideline. But there are these other pieces of evidence-based medicine that we use, and maybe interchangeably isn't the right word, but it certainly is used in an overlapping way. Other organizations have algorithms or protocols, or pathways. There's all these different words that mean things that are similar, but not exactly the same. So I think when we use the word guideline, we have to be very clear that that's an evidence-based medicine term based on a systematic review and meta-analysis is different than, hey, here's an algorithm that, you know, we got, you know, five or six experts together to, to come up with an algorithm or a pathway or something like that. And then, you know, pathways and protocols have very different meanings uh, at different hospitals. You know, a pathway is a recommendation of you should do, you should do this most of the time. A protocol is something, at least at our hospital, where you must follow hospital protocol, for example, for a timeout or some other, other specific things that have a protocol, um, you know, protocols, pathways, guidelines, these things are all related, but they're all a little bit different. That's very good. Definitely something to think about in terms of uh, the definition of the words you tend to use uh, on an almost overlapping basis. Um, you mentioned grade. Can you tell us a little bit more about what grade is? And if there's, you mentioned in your uh, presidential address that you and John Como actually went to a two and a half day course. Is that something that you would recommend for the average East member or somebody interested in guidelines? Or is that designed specifically for a certain type of individual? Sure. So um, GRADE is a very specific approach to doing evidence-based medicine. It's, uh, it stands for the grading of recommendations, assessment, 
development and evaluation. So that's kind of what grade is. Um, and we at East, actually the year before I took over as a guidelines chair, I took over from um, Andy Kerwin. And the group before I took over had decided they were gonna switch to grade. And it is a very different approach. And I can go over a little bit what it looks like, but I think it's interesting to hear the story. So East had had a very standard way it had been doing uh, guidelines. There was a primer that had been published and we're following the, the way East did guidelines for years. And like I said, the year before um, I came on board, Andy and the team had agreed to switch over to grade. Um, and what that entailed was kind of stopping all the guidelines that were underway, finalizing the writing of those and getting this last batch published. We actually uh, wrote a uh, supplement to the Journal of Trauma that uh, Andy Kerwin and I co-edited, uh, which were kind of the last of the old-fashioned East guidelines. This was uh, 2012. Um, and in it, we wrote a paper, and Andy is the first author, about how East will use grade moving forward. Um, and grade, it, it in some ways has a lot of the same ideas of the steps along the way of how you come up with a good question, how you put together the team who's going to do this, how you do a systematic review and or meta-analysis, and then how you go from that data summary to some specific recommendations, uh, whether those are a strong recommendation that it must be done all the time for every single patient, or what we call a conditional recommendation that's, in most cases, you should be doing X, but once in a while, or you might have to consider it on a case-by-case -case basis, because for some patients, you might want to do Y. That's where these conditional recommendations, and most of them end up being conditional, not because it's not a good recommendation, but it's because there is some nuance in there for it. Um, so, you know, we've done a lot of training of East members on grade. Uh, and yeah, John and I were the first two that went to this course. We went in, this is, you know, back in the olden days of in-person courses, we went in person to New York City and took a course at the New York Academy of Medicine um, about evidence-based medicine and about grades specifically. We learned a lot of specific content material, but even more so, John and I got to meet some people who were in charge of and running grade. And they were then helpful um, collaborators, I would say, for the first you know, few guidelines we wrote. And it was great to have experts help us, a GI doctor, a urologist. Like these are not people in trauma, but they are people with expertise in, in methodology who helped us write some of our early guidelines. And they were really good collaborators along the way. Since then, East has sent at least 50 people to different grade courses of different types. Some are in person, some have now been hybrid. Um, you know, many of these have been paid for by East, you know, travel, registration, et cetera, because East really believes in the mission of doing guidelines. Uh, but yeah, 50, 50 different people have been trained on this. Not every single person in the whole organization, not all 3,000 members needs to go to a course. Um, but I would say that if you're if you are interested in helping to write guidelines, we have a lot of this information available on the East website. There's webinars, there's primers, there's you know uh, documents, PDFs you can read about how to do this. You don't necessarily have to spend two days at a two-day course. The guidelines committee can really help. If you've got an idea for a guideline, there's a place on the website where you pitch your idea. The guidelines committee, chair and vice chair will look over the ideas 
and decide if it's something that the committee wants to move forward with. And then if they do, they say, great, okay, Elliot, you're ready to go. Read this, here's how we do it, here's the steps and follow the steps and let's get the guidelines started and the guideline committee will help you. Um, so I think there's a lot of different levels of who needs to know how much. I think the average East member should understand that we use grade and how to read a paper and how to, to talk to their residents or their other faculty or their nurses or their anesthesiologists about a guideline. Uh, but not everybody has to understand exactly how to, to write one and do a meta-analysis and all the other pieces. Very nice. Very nice. I'm one that uh, encourages everybody to uh, at least take the opportunity on an institutional level to identify gaps in your institution's uh, guidelines and uh, get involved in that as a stepping stone sort of to the quality uh, and patient safety um, aspect. Um, let's uh, move on to your new appointment uh, to the editor-at-large for the Trauma Surgery and Acute Care Open, which I believe you take over next year in 2023. January 1st, <laughs> I'm excited for it. Uh, what can you tell us about the journal? It seems like it's a fairly new journal, and Dr. Fabian was the first editor, I believe, of the journal. What role does it play in the publication of trauma and acute care surgery research, and how does it work with the Journal of Trauma to increase the publication of our research? Sure. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. You know, for decades, you know, when I was a, when I was a resident, you know, the Journal of Trauma was the leading trauma journal that I would read and I would see papers in. And that was always the journal as a resident or fellow and even junior faculty where I'd aspire to publish my trauma papers. Um, and for years, it's been kind of, I'm not going to say the only game in town because there are other trauma journals. Uh, but but for us, for our specialty journal, that was really the place. Uh, that really changed about five or six years ago with the creation of Trauma Surgery and Acute Care Open. So the journal is owned by the AAST, American Association for the Surgery of Trauma. It's published by uh, BMJ, you know, British Medical Journal, which is a a huge international publisher. It is an open access journal. And for those not familiar with open access, the way that works is uh, the authors uh, pay a fee. There's an article processing charge that gets paid to the journal. And in exchange for that, your article is then open access for anyone in the entire world to read anytime for free because you are the owner of that content. It's up on the website. It's an online only journal. Um, so that open access really changes it. As opposed to if you publish in other journals, for example, Journal of Trauma, uh, the only people who can read that are people who either have a personal subscription, so you can get that via East or you know AAST is a member, or they have a library subscription that gets library access to that journal. But but the average reader, you know, the public can't always routinely access it. People globally, trauma surgeons. Emergency medicine doctors, et cetera, can't access it globally necessarily. So that's the the benefit of open access just in general. I think that it brings a couple different things to the discussion about trauma research. You know, my vision is that we're going to try to provide the global trauma and acute care surgery community with free access, and I think free is an important piece, to top-notch scientific information. The main driver of that is going to be research. You know, I think a journal research is going to have to be a critical piece. 
And we are certainly looking for high quality research. If you have it, please send it to us. We would love to publish it. But there's other content that's not pure primary research that I think is important for people to read. And that is all these other types of articles uh, that are gonna help us enhance global communication. Those are review articles. Those are commentaries. Those are editorials. Those are you know, some of these guidelines or these other pieces that aren't new primary research, but it might help us still change our practice. It's implementation science. How do you actually take some research that got done and bring it to your trauma center? We have a wide interest. You know, it's trauma surgery. That's part of our name. But acute care surgery is part of our name as well. So it's emergency general surgery. It's critical care. We're interested in global. We, we've got a lot of different pieces that we're interested in. And then I think one of the pillars, I would say, research is a pillar. Communication is a pillar. And I think diversity, equity, and inclusion is kind of the third pillar. Those, those are the three legs of that three-legged stool that I think the journal is going to stand on. I'm excited to take over the role. Like I said, you know, Tim Fabian started this from literally zero, and now the journal's published 500 papers. So, you know, it, it, it started as literally nothing, and now it's a well-known, well-respected international journal in the trauma field. We're going to be getting an impact factor in the spring. And I think we're going to be growing and growing this journal. I'm excited for it. Very nice. It seems like even over the last five years of its existence, I've seen sort of the bias against open access evolving over that time to be a little bit more accepting, especially of this journal in particular. I think in some ways, open access, there's certainly people that are biased against it. And I've had people say to me, I don't need to pay to get my research published. I'm going to publish it in a good journal. And I tell them, you know, I understand, I understand. And, and I think you have to understand the difference between open access and these predatory journals out there. There are definitely predatory journals. And it's not my term. That's the term that's used in the publishing world where they're going to be emailing you and trying to get you to publish in their low, lower tier journal. I mean, we're indexed in PubMed. We're published by BMJ. It's well-respected. We're owned by, you know, another huge trauma organization, AAST. We are a well-respected journal. We publish high-quality research. Uh, we're not just in it for the money. And I think that some of the predatory journals have made it hard for people to fully embrace open access. But I will tell you, as you get more and more research funding from the funders, they want these papers out there for the world to read. And they're willing to pay the open access fees for these papers to be out there for everybody to read all the time. So I think it's an interesting, you know, we're still trying to overcome that. I will tell you globally, mm -hmm. people are all in and totally understand the benefits of open access. And I would say in the United States, the people who have uh, funded research realize, you know, now NIH, where are you going to put it? You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've paid for open access articles from work funded by AHRQ or PCORI. Like they want the stuff that they've paid for to be out there and to be read. Yeah, I think one of the things that might need to change in order to help help with people is getting institutions uh, to pay for the, uh, the publication fees. But hopefully that will come with time. Yeah, and there's many different approaches. You know, I know some divisions have money for it. Some departments mm -hmm. have money for it. Like I said, if you've got research funding, the funders are willing to pay for it. 
Some do it at a library level where you can ask your library to cover some of these fees. There's mm -hmm. lots of different pathways to get these funded. And then the other piece that we're working on with organizations is, you know, the organizations as a whole will pay for some papers to get published. So East currently already, you know, before I take over, we've already been putting aside some East budget to pay for some East content papers into the journal. And I would love to see that that partnership grow both with East or with lots and lots of other organizations or national meetings or international meetings. So I think be on the lookout for all of those. So, so an individual person might not necessarily have to pay for it, but an organization or a meeting can dedicate some budget to paying for some of their meeting associated papers or papers that are important to the organization. Is there anything with the journal that is allowing more junior faculty and more early career people to become involved in the editorial process? Absolutely. So, you know, for East members listening, East has had a East initiative to help East members become more facile with the editorial process with a mentoring program for the Journal of Trauma. We have done something very similar in trauma surgery and acute care open. Uh, Stephanie Savage has helped lead that, and I helped her last year with it. You know, this is our second year. We've matched about 10 junior faculty and or fellows, mostly junior faculty, with senior people to learn the mentor, the peer review process. So, you know, you would be matched with me. You and I would review some papers together. You would learn how to do it. Over the course of the year, you would do this four or five or six times. And then over the course of the year, you'd learn those skills so that then you can be on the roster of reviewers. So we have that already up and running for junior faculty to be learning that editorial process. Uh, we certainly have an internship for social media. So we've had some uh, residents and fellows over the past, I would say, three or four years who've helped us run social media for the journal and get involved with the editorial board. And then I think as you see, the editorial board announced in early 2023, I think you'll see that it's not just all these full professors that are full senior towards the end of their career. You're going to see a lot more assistant and associate professors getting involved uh, early on, because I think those people really have skill sets, research knowledge, uh, expertise in specific areas that we need. Um, I think you're going to look at the list and there will be people that you don't know who they are. And that's okay. That's a good sign. That means it's not just the same old people that you've been hearing about again and again. It's going to be a bunch of new people who get the opportunity to help lead and are going to really bring high quality content cultivated into this journal. So be on the lookout for, for more people. You know, we're still taking uh, nominations and including self-nominations. This was very transparent. It's open. If you want to apply, send me an email. Um, there's still a few spots I'm trying to fill in. So it's not all complete and 100% done yet. Sounds like a very uh, good opportunity for anybody early in their career who wants to become involved in the editorial process to get involved, uh, besides just responding to random emails on the occasional opportunity to, to review a specific paper. Um, that concludes uh, the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss with people that uh, I maybe didn't ask you about? or anything to say to close the conversation today? Man, I just want to say, I just want to publicly have the chance to say how amazing the East organization is. Um, you know, I've been involved with East 
for, you know, going on two decades. And, you know, whether I was just as a member or, you know, a member on a committee and then chairing committees and then, you know, helping lead the organization, it really, it, it aligns with my interests in mentoring the next generation and growing the, the, the next, all the people that are going to take over uh, the world of trauma and teaching them how to do these things. It's great to see residents that I recommended, hey, join East as a resident who have now moved up the ranks and they're like the vice chair of a committee or they're chairing a committee or people that I remember as more junior than me or that are now uh, on the board or driving all this mission of East is really, really amazing. And it is a great place to learn. It's the first place that trauma surgeons often get involved in a large national leadership role. Um, I think you'll see more and more people grow from and use that East experience to catapult them uh, into other roles uh, in trauma and surgery overall. So I think it's, it's a great organization. I can't say enough amazing things about it. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. This was great. That's all for today's episode. The CareerCasts are brought to you by the Career Development Committee. If you have an idea for an episode, you can submit a proposal at east.org under the Education and Career Development section. You can also find us on Twitter at east underscore trauma, and I'm at smstreit. That's S-T-R-E-I-T. All right, until next time.